I'm going to go ahead and pray. God, our Father, Lord, we are so grateful for your love to us. Lord, we, uh, we just glorify you. We exalt you. We lift you up. And, and we do see your majesty, Lord. And we are in awe of who you are, O oh God. We are so grateful, dear God, that you have counted us worthy to stand in your <coughs> presence by the blood of your Son, Jesus. We are so grateful, O oh God for the cross and for all that you have done for us in Christ. Lord, we want to express our thanksgiving for the good work that you're doing in our hearts and in our minds through your word and by your spirit. We thank you, Father, that you are changing us to be like you. And Lord, we ask this morning that as we look into your word very closely that you would Impress it upon our minds. Impress it upon our hearts. Lord, that you would grant us uh, revelation. That you would, uh, Lord, cause us to come to know your will. Father, that we might walk in it. That we might truly be a people to the praise of your glorious grace. Lord, we just thank you for this beautiful passage of scripture. We pray, Lord, that it would change us and that we would never be the same again from this day forward. Lord, that we would just increasingly take on your likeness. And and, uh, Lord, we just want to thank you for the privilege that we have to gather here and, and to proclaim your word freely. We thank you for your love to us. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so we are... Uh, we are back in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, and uh, I'm going to go ahead and read the context of uh, today's lesson. is going to be, I'm going to start in verse 11, and I'm going to read through verse 24. Ephesians chapter 4, 11 through 24. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, <coughs> by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus, that... 
in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Amen. So there we are in Ephesians chapter 4. And just a, a little bit of review. Uh, you recall that the first half of the book is, a, is a, a, about a doctrinal understanding of salvation. And the second half of the book is a practical understanding of salvation. And so the first three chapters is position, what we call positional truth. And the last three chapters is practical or practice. It's about how we practice our faith. The first three chapters defines who we are in Christ and what our faith is by nature. The last three chapters define how we are to live that faith out, how we are to practice or walk or live according to that faith that's been defined in the first three chapters. And I wanted to just to point you back to a verse, and I want you to consider this as you think about living out the practice of your faith. But... Um, Looking back at uh, chapter 1, and I'm just going to just read verse 11 and 12, which is kind of an overview of, of the things that he says in, in verses 3 through, through 10. He says, Also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his own will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. And I want to just remind you of the whole purpose of the mystery of God. The whole purpose of God calling a people out of darkness into light and calling them to himself is for the praise of the glory of God's grace. And therefore, the reason... For our existence as a church is that we would be to the praise of his glory. That God would be glorified in us. And certainly God is manifesting his glory through the church, right? You remember how we read in chapter 3 where it said that now the manifold wisdom of God is being made known to the principalities and powers, right? Through the church. And that we are on display for all the world to see, right? Uh, we are on display for what? For the praise of the glory of God's grace. So when you consider the, the foundation or the reason or the purpose <clears throat> for practicing our faith, here it is. It is for the praise of the glory of God. Because now we have been made new creations in Christ. We have been created in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, we must walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We can no longer live like the Gentiles. We can no longer live in our former way of life because we've been called out of that. And we've been made new. And we are, in fact, and indeed, the church of God, that holy dwelling where he lives by his spirit, right? And so if that's who we are, then what is our practice going to be consistent with? going to be consistent with who we are. And really that's what Christian maturity is all about. It's becoming practically 
what we are in position. It's living out our position, right? And we've talked about that in various ways, various different times. Lots of people have made good comments on that. Um, <clears throat> but I just don't, I don't want you to forget. We start looking at a bunch of do's and don'ts, if you will. We start looking at, you know, some very practical things about the way we live. That all of that stuff is for the praise of the glory of God. More than that, we are for the praise of the glory of God. Uh, friends, that brings great meaning and great purpose and great definition to our lives. Amen? Because we are indeed the church of the living God. We are indeed the children of God, the family of God, the temple of God. Amen? And so we must walk in a manner worthy. Amen? Would you agree? We have no other choice, really. Now that we've received the knowledge of the truth, now that we were taught as the truth is in accordance to Jesus, amen? Okay, so as we kind of move through this passage, I want you to, to remember those things, that we are for the praise of the glory of God. And we've been looking at verses 11 uh, through 16, and uh, we, we basically got through verse 13 last week. And I just, I just wanted to briefly remind you of, of the context of this, this passage. Now, you remember that uh, the, the first part of Ephesians chapter 4 is kind of broken into two parts. And the first part discusses the, the uh, unity of the church. And the second part discusses the maturity of the <coughs> church. And we're in that section that's talking about the maturity of the church and how the maturation process takes place. How does the church mature? And if you will, I, I kind of just made this little thing from the text of Ephesians 4, 11 through uh, 16, which, you know, <clears throat> sorry, which is, you know, he says, he gave some to be apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers for what? For the equipping of the saints. Right? And then what does it say? To the building up of, the, I'm sorry, uh, to the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. So that when the saints are equipped, they do the work of the ministry. And what is that? To the building up of the body. So there becomes this process that's taking place. As the saints are equipped and they're doing the work of the ministry, the body is being built up. And what is it being built up in? It's being built up in the unity of the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God until what? Until we attain or unto maturity. Until we reach that place of maturity, which it says there in verse 13, is according to the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. Amen? And last week we were talking about this, this goal of perfection that we have. And that is, is never really satisfied because we <coughs> always have new believers coming in. And every one of us is always uh, being more and more conformed into the image of Christ. And we've all got plenty of room to grow, don't we? Amen. And so the body just continues to grow and continues to take on this fullness of the measure of Christ as we grow up, as this process takes place. But you see, if you're missing some of these uh, lower fundamental elements of this process, what's going to happen? If the saints never get equipped, 
What's going to happen to the work of the ministry? It doesn't get done. Yeah, it doesn't get done, or it gets done improperly, right? So then what happens? The body's not built up in the unity of the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and they don't become mature. mature. They remain what? Infants. Children. Infants. Right? So you see how vital this process is. And this is what the structure of the church ought to look like. Amen? Amen. You want to know what a healthy, (coughs) well-balanced church looks like? Here it is. Right? And all of this is centered around what? Christ. Christ, who is the living Word of God. Right? Who is revealed in the Scripture. It's all centered around the Scripture. Which is something I want to kind of point out to you this morning. And it is, I want to... I keep using this word, and I kind of want to define it for you. It's the word didactic. The word didactic. It comes from the Greek word didactikos, or um, uh, didasko. Okay? And, and what this word means is, according to teaching, or according to doctrine. Okay? Or the word didacto is the word teach. All right? And so what I want to talk to you about is that the nature, the very nature of the Christian faith is didactic. Okay? You understand what I'm saying? It is according to teaching. It is according to instruction. Right? And I mean, you can you can see this all through the Bible, right? The, 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 the whole uh, Jewish religion, the Hebrew religion, was didactic, right? You remember the Shema. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, right? And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? These commands I give you today are to be upon your hearts. And you are to what? Teach them diligently to your children, right? And talk about them when you sit down, lie down, get up, and walk along the way, right? Hang them as frontlets on your foreheads and bind them on on your wrists. Write them on your gates. Write them on your doors, right? And the the whole nature of the Hebrew faith was didactic. And And when the Lord Jesus came, what did he do? Well, he came preaching. He came instructing. He came teaching. And this this is what encompassed the ministry of Christ. Daily, he was in preaching. He was instructing. He was teaching. Right? And so, something very important to understand. You don't just get changed into a new creature, and then all of a sudden you have taken on the characteristics of Christ. Amen? But the very nature of our faith is didactic. It's according to doctrine. It's according to teaching. It's according to instructing. And we were always ever learning and growing. You with me? And so it's really important to to see this in this passage of Scripture. Because this process of the body being built up to maturity is a didactic process. That's why when we come to church, what are we always doing? We're always cracking the word, and we're being instructed by the word of God. And, I mean, that is what encompasses everything we do in ministry. 
Okay? And indeed, that is the work of the ministry that belongs to the saints. It's a didactic work. It's an instructional work. It's a teaching work. It's not just for the pastor. What is the pastor teaching you to do? Exactly. He's teaching you to teach. Why? Because you're becoming like Christ, who is the great what? Teacher. Amen? And so this this is the work of the ministry. And we're going to see that. I'm going to show you some scripture this morning that that speaks directly (coughs) to that. But in in review, I just wanted to kind of go back through those verses 11 through 13. Because that's kind of the first part of this. You know, that, that kind of comes to about right here. Verses 11 through 13 is the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the pastor teaching, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry to the building up of the body of Christ unto the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And then we will no longer be children, but we will be a mature man. Amen? As the body, as each member of the body has its proper working and supplies to the body what it needs to grow up in all aspects unto him. That's what it says in verses 14 and 16. Right? And that's why each member of the body is important. And each member of the body has to do that work of the ministry that they've been gifted by the Spirit to do. So that the whole body corporately grows up in all aspects unto Christ. Amen? Friends, that is the structure of the church. And it is a didactic structure. Okay? We're always learning. We're always growing. We were in darkness, friends. We couldn't see a thing. When we came to Christ, we began to learn through a a, a revelatory process of light being shined into our souls so that now we could what? See. Amen? When we were born again... That was a revelatory work that that God did inside of our souls. He opened up our eyes to see the kingdom of God. Lest a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Right? And the minds of the unbelievers have been blinded so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. But when God regenerates the soul, he brings revelation. He brings light. He brings sight. He brings understanding to what? To his nature, which is holy and righteous and just and true. And we're so steeped in our darkness that we've got to be instructed all the days of our life to even begin to fathom the beginnings of the glory of God, which is perfect in its perfections. Amen? And it's toward that perfection that we are in pursuit. We are pursuing a perfect man. Amen? And that's the nature of the faith. And that's, that's why our, our faith is didactic, it's instructional, because we always are striving on to this heavenward calling of perfection in Christ, both as individuals and as a corporate body. Amen? And that's why the church exists, to take on the very character and nature of Christ, which is what? To the praise of his glorious grace. So that we become like Christ and we manifest the glory of God to a watching world and to fallen angels who have been condemned and to holy angels who are standing in the awe of what God is doing in the church. Amen? Amen. Okay. 
So then, let's look at verses 14 through 16. And there it says, As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Okay? So you can see where he's made these statements about <clears throat> the, the apostle, prophet, evangelist, and pastor, teacher, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, to the building up of the body, uh, in the unity of the faith, and the knowledge of the Son of God. And he says, look, then we're going to become mature to the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ, or until we become mature. And we were talking about this last week, that it's a continual process. We're always in pursuit of it because we never quite attain it. Right? So in that pursuit, but look what he says. When, when we become mature, then what happens? We are no longer children. When we become mature... We are no longer children. Well, there's a couple of things about that. That is to state that when we're young Christians, what are we? Babies. We're babies. We're children in the faith. We're infants, right? And I want to tell you something. If you're a new Christian, you need to understand that. you got a lot to learn, right? <laughs> and if, if you're not a new Christian, you need to understand that. You know why? you got a lot to learn, right? I always, I always uh, you know, J. Vernon McGee always used to say, the more you learn about the Word of God, the more you learn you don't know. Right? Amen. And, and, uh, and you know, it, it's, just, it's just the nature of the faith. The nature of the faith is just always ascending. It's ascending and ascending and ascending to the height of the exalted glory of God. Amen? Which is what we are. We're no longer descending. We are ascending. Amen? We've been born again. We are new creatures in Christ. Amen? Our lives are welling up into eternal life. Amen? Praise the Lord. How glorious that is. So look what he says. When, when this process begins to take place and we reach that level of maturity... We are no longer children. Okay? Now look at this with me. How is it that he defines this childhood? Look what he says. We will no longer be children, what? Tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Okay? And here, because he's talking about the nature of a didactic faith, okay, he points to what it means to be a child in the faith. What is that child in the faith? He's tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. He's not grounded and settled in sound doctrine. Okay? And I want to warn you if you're a new Christian here. To understand what it means if you are a child in the faith. Okay? 
You are not to be tossed to and fro by every wind of teaching. Because I want to tell you, there's a hundred thousand winds of teaching out there. I mean, you know, the apostles didn't get the doctrines off their lips before some false men were running down the road with some false doctrine running after their own prophet. Seeking to draw away disciples and seeking to scratch the itching ears of a populous public. And it goes on to this very day. You know, the... The, the, the war on false doctrine, the war contending for the faith is an ancient thing. It's not something that just came up in the last few years when Benny Hinn started preaching on TV. Okay? It's been going on for a very long time since there was a faith. Right? I mean, how else is the devil going to fight against the church except to corrupt its beautiful doctrine of its glorious Savior? Right? Because why? Because the nature of our faith is didactic. And because we keep trying to teach the truth so that we can conform our hearts and our minds to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and to his glorious nature. And if the devil can corrupt our understanding of that, if he can by deceitful scheming secretly introduce destructive heresies, right? That's exactly what he will seek to do. Because if he gets this foundation uh, of the the body growing up into maturity, what's going to happen? The church is going to flounder as a bunch of children in immaturity, right? And you can see much of that in the professing church. Why? Because they're blown to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And you see them running after the latest cunning craftiness of men and deceitful scheming. You know, we don't have to be moved by every movement that blows through the church. Amen. That's not maturity. Friends, the church isn't a trend. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth. She's stuck in a foundation. What foundation? The foundation of Jesus Christ who's been laid, the chief cornerstone, built on the foundation of what? The apostles and the prophets, the New Testament doctrine. The church is sitting on a solid foundation. We don't move with the movements. We grow up into the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ and the foundation we set. Amen? So as a young Christian, you need to get it down in your mind. Hey, I have got to learn the fundamentals of the faith. I need to understand what the character and the nature of God is. I need to understand what is the nature of salvation? What are its characteristics? How does the Bible describe its process? Instead of being blown to and fro by every kind of wind that blows through the church that makes everybody feel good, let me tell you something. The cross is an offense to the natural man. And you're still carrying that sinful nature around with you. That dead body is still attached. <laughs> Amen? And we have these tendencies toward what sounds good, what scratches our ears, what makes us feel good. Right? But we need to take on the nature of this faith, which is true and absolute. Jerry? I was going to say, you know, most of the the, uh, the false religions that use the same terminology as the Bible... You know, like Jehovah's Witness, Mormonism, 
most of the founders of those religions were in the Christian church to begin with. And for whatever reason, they broke away from the Christian church based on their own understanding of the scriptures, and they invented uh, Jehovah Witness religion, for example, and uh, Mormonism. So you can see the results of <coughs> children being tossed by false doctrines going to the extent of creating their own religion. Mm-hmm. Because, like I say, most of the false religions that use the Bible, even in a certain <coughs> form, mm-hmm. were in the Christian church at one time in their lives and then broke away and started their own religion. Amen, absolutely. And, and you know, the reason for that is because when the truth was laid down and the enemy came and began to attack the truth, what did he attack? Well, he attacked specific, fundamental, absolute truths of the Christian faith. And what did he do? He sought to distort those. So down through the ages, if you study church history, if you study the the, uh, doctrinal development of of teaching in the Christian faith over the church history, what you find is, is that all these new heresies that come out are really not new at all. They're just a repackaging of some former heresy that began long ago because what it's doing is it's attacking the same fundamental truths that are there in the Christian faith, which we as Christians have got to take on just in the the lower stages of our development. We've got to get our feet on that foundation that is in Christ so that we can grow up in this unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. We've got to get those fundamentals down. We've got to understand what they are so that those repackaging of those heresies like Jerry is saying won't come and attack us because we are armed with the truth and we're not blown to and fro by every wind of doctrine. I, I want to ask this question, okay? I'm going to pick on Benny Hinn. What kind of a Christian thinks that Benny Hinn is a man of God? Not well I, I, I'm, I'm serious. Not well I mean, let me tell you something. <laughs> Diane Sawyer and Charlie Gibson know that Benny Hinn is a charlatan. Why don't Christians know that? Are you with me? I mean, you don't have to listen to the man for five minutes before you realize he he is the fulfillment of a false teacher and a false prophet. And if you if you can't see that clearly, friends, you got a long way to go in getting the fundamentals down. Okay? And I, I'm just I'm just trying to kind of shock you maybe and open your eyes to see. Okay? It really is that clear to anybody who has any kind of biblical discernment. Are you with me? I mean, if Diane Sawyer knows the guy is a fool, what's with the church? What's with the church who's got the spirit of the living God, who's got the entire testimony of the whole counsel of God to live in and walk in? The living Christ lives inside our soul, and we can't discern a false prophet, a false teacher? Why? Because we're infants. Tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine that's blowing through the church. Or every wind of prophet who's blowing on the church. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you've got to believe 
You've got to be able to prove to yourself why you believe what you believe. And, you know, don't take your mom's word for it. Don't take anybody's word for it. Why do you believe that Jesus is God? You have to go to the Bible and prove to yourself why you believe that. Amen. Along with all the great doctrines of the truth, why do you believe it? Amen. You've got to prove to yourself that is why I believe it. And, and here's the thing. The, the nature of our faith, friends, is didactic. It's instructional. What are we as Christians doing when we get together? We're, we're learning about these things. We're learning about the fundamentals. We're learning about our position. We're learning about our practice. We're taking on the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. We're growing up into a mature man. That's, that's what we're doing. That, that's the, the working of the ministry of the church so that the body will be built up. And what's the body going to be built up in? It's going to be built up in the entire council. When he says the unity of the faith, He's talking about the whole body of Christian teaching. We're going to be built up in all of the teachings of Christ and the apostles so that we come to a knowledge of the Son of God. And it's not just knowing things about Jesus. It's to know Christ, to know him, and to know his teaching, to know his truth, to know the glorious gospel. To know what's happened to you when you've been made a new creation in Christ. To know what your practice ought to be. To know what it means to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. You have a purpose. You have a direction. You have meaning. You're going somewhere here. You're going to the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. You have a proper working within the body of Christ that needs to be fulfilled. You have a ministry to work out so that the rest of the body can be built up. You've been given the grace and the gift of God to work in that ministry and serve the body of Christ so that she will be built up and will become a glorious dwelling where God lives by His Spirit to the praise of His glorious grace. Amen? Amen. 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 You, can't, you can no longer be children. You've got to grow up, right? That's, that's what it's all about. That's the nature of our faith. And you can't defend the truth if you don't know the truth. Amen. Okay? You've got to make God's truth your own. Amen. And you know, the truth is under assault in the last couple of days with the death of the Pope. You listen to what's being said in the media, okay? And it has to grieve your heart because there's insult upon insult upon insult against our Holy Father. You know what? In the news today, they said they felt like orphans. I don't feel like an orphan because I have a heavenly father. Right? Do you see how God would be grieved by statements like that? And you know what? He declares us saints. We're the saints. Because God said so. Amen. Amen. Sorry. <laughs> Don't be sorry. I, don't, I, I get don't fired up. I, I get fired up because I love God's truth. Okay, and I have taken time to dig deep into the Bible to so that I could know why I believe what I believe. Amen. And furthermore, you know, Jerry and everybody else has a responsibility. What is that responsibility? It's to become an instructor. To be a disciple who does... What does a disciple do by nature? He makes disciples. 
right? I mean, this is the whole nature of our faith. This is the, the reason why we need to know the truth is because we have a job to do. We've got to teach the truth. We've got to instruct the truth. We've got to admonish and teach every man with what? All spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's why the church exists. This, that is this process of the church growing up and, and the body being built up. Okay? Uh, <clears throat> so then, he, he says here, we will no longer be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Right? Since we are all working in the ministry to build one another up to maturity, we will grow up in our salvation and no longer be children. <coughs> children or young... Children or young are prevalent with the professing church, put forth by the deceitful scheming of false teachers. These deceive for some purpose of personal gain. Okay? You know, when he describes what a child is, he takes it directly to this doctrinal understanding. He's saying that a child is tossed to and fro by doctrinal understanding. That that state of infancy is a state where you get blown by teaching here and there because you don't have that foundation of the fundamentals to hold you firm. Okay? And and uh, so understand this distinction in Ephesians 4 between a mature Christian and an immature Christian. A mature Christian is one who has his feet on the foundation of the gospel, the didactic understanding of the, of the faith of Christ. And, and an infant, one who is a child, is one who is blown to and fro by every wind of teaching. Okay? That's the contrast that's being made here. Therefore, we see the contrast between the mature and the immature Christians. Namely, that the immature Christian is doctrinally ignorant, and the mature Christian is doctrinally grounded in the knowledge of the Son of God. Okay? And so see, see then... The goal of this passage here. The goal here then is to become mature in the knowledge of Christ and of the will of God for life and its meaning, purpose, and duty. Okay? Now consider this contrast between this building up process of the true church and the false teacher who is the one or the source of that deceitful scheming and that blowing of false doctrine through the church. I want to read to you 2 Peter 2, a few verses here. It says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Okay? Here you get this description of these false teachers. And look what it says. Many will follow their what? Their sensuality. Right? And that the, because of false teachers, the way the truth will be what? Maligned. That's why Diane Sawyer and Chuck Gibson get on the TV and do this expose on a false prophet. And what do they do to the gospel? They say, look, look here, world. Look at all these silly Christians playing their silly games. And what are they doing? 
They're maligning the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And they're taking this deceitful scheming and trickery of some man, and by it, they are causing the way of the truth to go into disrepute. You see that? That's what it means when the Bible says that the, because of the false teacher, the way of the truth will be maligned. Right? It's amazing what, what happens here. But look what he says. They, that many will follow their sensuality, right? And in their greed, they will what? Exploit you with false words. Look at verse 18. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. He's talking about how a false teacher works. Okay? Notice some things about how a false teacher works. He introduces destructive heresies. What does that mean? Well, he's going to teach some false teachings, false doctrines that are going to be what? Destructive. They're going to destroy this process of the church being built up. They're going to attack the truth. Okay? But look what he says. Those, those doctrines are destructive. They're going to be introduced by the false teacher. But how will they be introduced? Secretly. Now think about that. How do you secretly introduce a destructive heresy? Well, you can't show up with your pitchfork in your hand and say, Ha! I'm the devil. <laughs> right? What happens? They slide in under the door. They're like snakes. They slither in. Right? And they come in masked as what? An angel of light. As an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. They come in with swelling words. Of authority. Okay? They parade around as if they are true apostles. And that's usually something that characterizes them also. They they speak the very word of God. Right? Their arrogance and pride should be the first clue that they're not real. Amen. Amen. And, and I can tell you, a lot of Christians, if they don't have a lot of discernment, they, the Holy Spirit still lives in them. And they turn those guys on the TV. And, and although they may not be able to pick out their doctrinal error, they know something is not right. They're like, what is it about this guy? Man, he's just, you know, something's just not right. Well, it's great swelling arrogance and pride that follows them. Right? And their greediness. Every one of them is, is begging and pleading and figuring out some new way for you to give money. Or some new doctrine of seed faith by which you have to take money out of your pocket and put it in theirs. <laughs> Amen? I think, you know, there's something even more subtle. I mean, if you see the lady with the big hairdo or whatever, whatever on TV, kind of the, the little alarms go off pretty quick. But there, there are many churches that supposedly teach the Bible, but then they really throw in a little something else like, it's your feelings, really, that are important. And if you get a good feeling singing the song, you don't need to know too much about the words. Mm-hmm. Amen. Oh, amen. amen. Those subtle things are the ones that... Yeah. Amen. I mean, how many people, when they do the little surveys, claim mm-hmm. to be Christians? And you look yeah. at, really, who is that? Blah, 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 blah. The subtle differences, I think, are the most dangerous ones. 
are. And it's very subtle. And that's how a false teacher secretly introduces a destructive heresy. He parades in as an angel of light. He's very subtle in what he does. It's craftiness. You see? It's deceitful. It's promising something that it not really is. Right? And Paul says, it's scheming. Man, they're planning that stuff out. Let me tell you. They're working hard at it. Right? Because they're making big bucks. Right? They're professionals at what they do. One last quick comment. I just wonder if it's a common trait to those people that they have to keep people from reading the word. Clearly, you know, in the, you know, Luther's before Luther and all that, people weren't allowed to read the Bible. And so I wonder if nowadays the ones that are misleading folks really don't want them to read the Bible that much. I mean, I know my son is that way. I've talked to him many times, and he's always this feeling, you know, this feel-happy church type thing. I said, well, you know, where do you see that? Where is it in the Bible? You don't see that. And so I think maybe part of their tool is to, to keep you from yeah, really well, knowing Yeah, oh, well, we redefine the whole nature of the faith. The faith is no longer didactic, right? Now it's all about an experience. Now you, and they use, they use wonderful terms, you know, like, like come into the presence of God and come into one of our worship services and God will meet you here with yeah. the experience. And so, you know, we have this wonderful flowery music and a nice plush auditorium and we have these great eloquent words that are designed to scratch our ears and our back and behind the backside of our ankles and, <laughs> and, and it's just, just a, the, the presence of God is in this place and the truth of God remains stuck in the pages of a Bible somewhere and what's happening is these people are, these people who are, are Christians many times Christians, those who are just escaping, those who live in error Children, infants, baby Christians, right? And they're just taken away with all of this feeling and all of these things, right? And the whole didactic nature of our faith has gone out the window. And you sit down and ask a Christian like that what they believe about salvation, they haven't even considered it. You know, you talk to them about something like sovereign grace, man, they think you're a devil from hell. You know, and the problem is they just haven't read their Bible. There's no careful Bible study. They're not coming in and sitting under the instruction of the Word. They're not coming in to learn about the glory of the character of God. You know, the, these things are just, they're foreign in many, in many professing Christian churches. And it's amazing, it's amazing what really is happening in a church. You know, but, um, Karen, you have a comment? Well, I was just going to say the fact that the, they're so... You know, they, they approach our senses and stuff. They're, they're so appealing. The churches are so, you know, attractive. And and because they come on with such authority, a baby Christian is like, they must be right or they would not be in this position. You know, so they they lure them in. Or, I, or I did go there and I, I really did have a profound experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The speaker brought me to tears. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the, the music took me away. You know, I understand that. And, and, and yes, that is a profound experience that you had. <laughs> but is it, the, is it the truth of God and the spirit of God convicting you of your sins and conforming you into the image of Christ? That's another thing entirely. Amen.
And so, uh, you know, it's it's very uh, it's 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 cunning craftiness. It's deceitful scheming. It's trickery of men. You see, they're uh, they're they're uh, appearing as angels of light, but what they're doing is they're deceiving. They're tricking. They're scheming. Okay, and we can no longer be children, church. We got to have discernment. We've got to grow up in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. We're, we're, we're seeking the perfection of a mature man, which means we've got to take on this knowledge. Why? Because Jesus came teaching. He came preaching. And he made 12 disciples. And what did they do? They went out teaching and preaching and instructing. They were didactic in what they did. And, and we are just like them. We have taken on that new ministry. Listen to a few of these scriptures about how we ought to be living out our ministry. Here's Colossians 1.28. And we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. What is the nature of that? It's proclaiming, admonishing, teaching. You see that? That's the very nature of our ministry. Jesus comes to the disciples and he says, Go therefore into all the world and do what? Make disciples. disciples. Doing what? Baptizing them and doing what? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Right? That's the very nature of the Great Commission. The very nature of the way that the church spreads is through teaching. It's didactic. Right? The very nature of Christians getting together for fellowship is what? It's instructional. It's didactic. Why? Because we're seeking to admonish one another, to teach one another. You know, Paul's warning the, uh, the Ephesian elders. He says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Right? He says, I was with you and I admonished each one of you for, th- for three years with tears. And what did Paul do for three years with tears? Admonishment. Teaching, instruction. So those pastors would go out and do what? Admonish, teach, instruct, make disciples. Right? It's the very nature of the faith in um, in Paul's prayers. He prays for the church. Remember the, the prayer in Ephesians 1? In verse 17 and 18 and 19. What's he praying? He says... I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Paul prays for the church. What does he want the church to do? He wants them to get a revelation of knowledge from God. Amen? About all these glorious realities that belong to them and who they are in Christ. You know, until until Christ and the apostles came along, us Gentiles had no idea that we were going to become the dwelling of God. We had no idea that God was going to work these glorious mysteries through the church and that we were going to become this pure and spotless bride set apart for her husband and get taken away into the glorious kingdom of heaven forever. We had no idea those things were going to happen. But Jesus came teaching and instructing and showing us who we are. And the apostles came behind and said, because you are like this, you've got to live like this. You're a people to the praise of God's glorious grace. 
and it's teaching. It's instructional. The whole nature of pastoral ministry, okay, is teaching. It's instructional. Listen to Paul speaking to Timothy. He says, uh, you know, when talking about the qualifications of a pastor, an overseer, an elder, he says, he must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, and what? Able to teach. (coughs) Why? Because that's what he does. He models by example, and he instructs, and he teaches. Amen? He goes on, he tells in 1 Timothy 4, 6, In pointing these things out to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. (coughs) What does a pastor do? Well, he himself is constantly nourished on the words of faith and of sound teaching so that he can do what? Give out. Continually, the words of faith and the sound doctrine. It is the very nature of our faith. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 3. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, right? Timothy, I'm solemnly charging you in the name of Jesus. What am I charging you to do? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and careful instruction. That is the very nature of pastoral ministry. Right? Because the pastor is teaching the flock to become like Jesus. Who was doing what? Reproving, rebuking, exhorting, teaching and training in righteousness with great patience and careful instruction. Right? And that's what we Christians are learning to do. We're learning to instruct one another. We're learning to admonish one another. We're learning to build one another up in the faith until we all reach maturity. (coughs) And when we all reach maturity, what will we be doing? We'll be teaching and admonishing and instructing. (coughs) I'm telling you, it is the very nature of our faith, this process. And... and, um, I think you probably got that by now. (laughs) (laughs) You know, if you've been under the ministry of someone like John MacArthur, let's say you've been listening to his radio broadcasts for 10, 15 years. By the end of those 10 to 15 years, you should have like a Ph.D. in theology and the doctrines of Christianity. I'm serious. You know? After X number of years, mm-hmm. you ought to be right there. I tell you, when you see when you see somebody model that ministry like that, you know, and I mean, you know, all they do is just constantly dole out the clear, concise teaching of the, of, of the glory of God. You know, it, it just has a profound effect. It has a tremendously profound effect because that's the whole nature of the faith. This is a profound process. I mean, can you really imagine? a whole body, a whole, even just a congregation of people who have grown up into the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ? What must that look like? I tell you, that's a powerhouse of ministry is what that is. Because these people understand they are ministers. And you've got an army of ministers in a community. Okay? That's a profound thing. Really, that's what the church is corporately, even though she is... Uh, existing within the entire professing church, the true church that is there, she is doing this process. And there is a body that is being called out and being transformed. Amen? Amen. 
And the saints, there's always been faithful preachers down through the ages, and there always will be. Until Christ comes and destroys evil and wicked and falsehood. Amen? Amen? This process is going to continue. And it's happening. Why? Because he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Amen? Amen? He's building his church. It's happening. We are privileged to be a part of it. Can we run this race with diligence and excellence? I don't know about you, but I want to do that. Amen? And friends, we're all in this thing together. If you see me out of line, I'm accountable to you. You've got to admonish me. You've got to help me. And I've got to do the same for you. Amen? We're all in this thing together, Sophia. I just wanted to say that I, I completely agree with what Jerry said about John Parker, and he's fabulous. I encourage everybody to listen to him. But those of you who have been maybe with Sean and Tim and Brandon from the beginning, maybe you don't understand. But for Harry and I, we felt like we were walking around in a desert without a cool drink of water. And coming here, you guys need to appreciate these men. Because they are godly men who are just, they are giving us the pure word of God. And there are so many people in here in Albuquerque. We have been to a lot of churches. And they're not doing it. And um, uh, we're blessed. Amen. Amen. Sean. Yes, Joe. I I just, uh, you know, things that you mentioned, obviously, it's very obvious to all of us, if you talk about bending in and others. Uh, my, the point I want to kind of bring out, too, is the less subtle uh, dangers that are presenting to the church today. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's This is the inter-world debates that are going on within evangelicalism. And it, it's didactic in the sense that there are differences of opinion within the body of Christ. And th- those opinions can lead in different directions. And, and if we talk about the whole issue, of, for, for example, the lordship and no lordship issue, that all has to do with the gospel. Uh, the perspective on Paul, the new perspective that's coming out in the church today, maybe some of you have heard about it, maybe some of you haven't. That, whole, that issue has to do with the very essence and essential of what the gospel is. Mm-hmm. And that's justification by faith alone. It's the whole issue of imputation and how significant and essential it is. The whole church growth movement. I mean, you can pick someone like Rick Warren, for example, in the, his uh, purpose-driven life and purpose-driven church. And there would be some things we could say that were very positive about that. But what are the subtle dangers that lie behind the book that were we're trying to bring out in that. Um, the whole difference between the Evangelical and Roman Catholic Accord and the difference between the Roman Catholic Church and the whole issue of uh, we were at as Protestants and Evangelicals and the dangers that rely there in the whole ecumenical movement. Now, how do we deal with people in the church that are being suddenly pulled into that? That's, that's a danger that we have to overcome <coughs> with our young people and particularly young Christians, but even all of us. How well do we understand that? There's some very basic things. It's just the Terry Schiavo case. How do you interpret that? How do you relate to that biblically? And here's another one about the Pope mm-hmm. and the fact that the, can you separate the Pope's office from his person and virtue and distinguish them both and in one sense have accolades to the Pope and in another sense there's some pretty dangerous. If this is what he believed about the Roman Catholic Church, the question becomes, is the Pope saved? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, a, yeah. that's, a, that's <coughs> something that people will ask. How do you answer that? How do you give a biblical answer? And you do that with compassion. You do that with love. And you say that. And that's the whole purpose of getting back to the sense that you have to lay the foundation of truth. And it's a lifelong process as you go through that. And whether or not this whole issue of, um, I understand what I read in the polls, I don't know if you know it or not, but over 
of evangelicals believed that it was okay to remove the tubes, feeding tubes of Terry Schiavo. That's an interesting thought. When you look at that, and the whole issue of the right to die, and the whole issue of euthanasia, here again, these are very practical issues, and where does your theology take you, and where does it bring you, in the sense of dealing day-to-day in your community with people you know, whether they're Catholics or not, or just people out there, how are you going to answer that question, and are you part of persuading those people in some loving kind of way that this is, this is not the way to go? This is the sanctity of life. This is the whole issue of <coughs> medical issues and moral issues, and how are we going to answer the world for those issues? Amen. So this is really important. There's more to Ephesians than just the eye of just looking and seeing what, interpreting the text. How do you take your understanding of the truth and apply it every day in your lives? Amen. 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 And I, I'm so thankful for, for uh, you know, some church leaders who do due diligence, and they, they, give us a, a, uh, they give us a guide. They help us to understand these subtleties, you know. And, and sometimes I'm not aware of them, you know. And I learn of them through, you know, different men who are discipling me, you know. And I, and I point to men like John MacArthur or John Piper, men that I greatly respect, and, and they have a lot of discernment. And I think the average Christian, uh, those things are so subtle they can hardly see them, you know. And, uh, but it, it's because we are still in this process of, of, of growing into maturity and growing into a knowledge, and growing into the mind of God, and having the discernment we need, so that we can apply that to our everyday life. You know, I, I think that's vital. That's important. Uh, this is this is the goal. We are growing into maturity. And, and here's how he says that happens. Okay, look what he says. Verse 15. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him, who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies. Now that's a mouthful. But look what he says is happening. The church is going to grow up how? Speaking. Didacticos. Right? Teaching. Instructing. What are we going to do with one another? We're going to speak the truth in love, and we're going to grow up in all aspects unto him. What is it that we're going to speak in love? The truth. 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 Where is the truth? Right here. We're going to speak this to one another in love. And when that happens, we're going to grow up in all aspects unto Christ. Why? Because we're going to begin to take on his nature. Why? Because we're going to learn what his nature is like. And we're going to know what that incomparably great power to us who believe that is living inside of us is striving to to form us into. We're going to begin to take on the understanding of the mind of the Spirit, and then we're going to be able to live it out. But we've got to come to a knowledge of it. We've got to come to an understanding of it, and then we can live it out. It's just like, you know, good parenting. What is good parenting? Well, you're going to instruct your kids. You're going to teach them. You're going to discipline them. You're going to form them into that adult who has the same value system that you have, that has the same understanding of truth and, and I mean, you know, especially Christian parenting. You know, how are you going to be a Christian parent? Let me tell you, the nature of your parenting is didactic. Yep. Amen, Charlotte. I think it's important that we understand that even within Christianity, there's going to be some room for disagreement, that we can't take the position that there are certain fundamental truths that are not negotiable, but 
within our our beliefs, even within our leadership at church, we've, we've seen that you three have disagreed on certain aspects of, of um, you know, how to, like when it came to women um, uh, deacons. I mean, there was a recognition that you guys disagreed on certain aspects of that position. And so I think that uh, um, we have to recognize that we can't be so bold as to say that every single thing that we believe is um, undeniable. I mean, there are, you know, there are certain things that we can disagree on and strive to become closer to God and understand the truth. Mm-hmm. But there are certain things that we cannot disagree on. So I think we need to be careful when we, you know, establish ourselves firm in every single thing that thing that we believe thinking that we cannot be wrong and that uh, that there might not be different uh, perspectives on the truth of Scripture. I'm not suggesting that you stick your fingers in your ear and, and no longer become teachable. How else could you be a recipient of a didactic ministry if, if you weren't con- always continuing to learn with some kind of humility? Uh, you know, so I, I hope you haven't heard me say that. You know, you grow up, you you arrive, and then you you uh, go bust everybody else over the head with the Bible. <laughs> no, I just think in some of these issues that are are um, are very emotional. Mm-hmm. I mean, that there may be other um, other things involved. I mean, I I take huge offense to thinking that that the Pope is not safe. I mean, I, as, as growing up Catholic and knowing many Catholics who have a very, very scriptural uh, basis of their faith, mm-hmm. yet tradition has crept in in certain areas that, mm-hmm. to me, do not um, take away from their relationship with Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I would be very careful as to go to a, a Catholic who believes the same fundamental doctrine as I do mm-hmm. and say because they pray to Mary they're not going to heaven. Which is exactly what I think Joe was pointing to. There are some much more subtle uh, things within the professing body of Christ that we need to come to an understanding of. And and what is the whole Catholic Protestant debate? What is it about? Well, some of it is foolishness. Some of it to debate it, some of it to argue it in scripture tells us it's foolish to argue certain things. Yeah, I disagree entirely. I, I have pointed out this morning very clearly that the whole nature of our faith is didactic. And we do have something to teach. And we do have something to contend for. And so, that contention so is Christmas, for... Christmas, celebrating Christmas, that's something we should argue about? Or celebrating Christmas and justification by faith alone yeah. are two entirely different doctrinal issues. And that's exactly what I said, is that there are some foundations I, and then there are other things that are, okay. are not. Well, I would take our brother's admonishment, and I would say that there are some some very subtle things that we need to come to an understanding of. And I would say that the, the Catholic-Protestant debate is not a minor issue. It is a major issue that every Christian ought to have settled in their mind. And if they don't, they need to get there, because that's one of the fundamentals. That's one of the, big, the base building blocks. As a matter of fact, I would say... Uh, that I am I'm recently coming to understand that the Catholic-Protestant debate is the most important doctrinal issue in the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. Just a clarification. Uh, number one, I agree with evangelicalism. There are essential issues we've got to hold to. Mm-hmm. And 
I believe that they're non-essentials, which even in this body, I'm sure, we won't all agree on certain things. But when you get the heart of, if we want to, and again, I didn't say one way or the other. I said that's a question that might be asked, for example, is the Pope saved? My question is if, for example, whether it's the Pope or whether it's Mother Teresa, what is the gospel? Is Christ sufficient or do we need something more? And I want to know what a false gospel is. What is a gospel that Galatians talks about, that Paul talks about in Galatians, which is another gospel? And if one believes in another gospel, can they be saved? And this is a whole issue of do we even need to believe the gospel or believe in Jesus Christ? This is a wider mercy view that's coming within evangelicalism today, which is another danger in the church, that you can be saved without having to hear the gospel. I want to know is that true or not true? So the question becomes if the Pope believes everything about what the Roman Catholic Church teaches about salvation, all I'm saying is I've got a real concern where the Pope is in relationship to Jesus Christ if Jesus Christ is not sufficient for him. That's all I'm saying is is that true or not true? And I don't want to make a judgment there. Ultimately, the Pope is in the hands of God when we say that, but that's a question that people are going to ask you. And if you're going to just bypass that and say that's not a question we need to answer, I think we really need to be honest with ourselves. We need to understand what the gospel is, and we're not going to compromise that gospel. Amen. And that's all I was saying, Charlotte, was that that issue, the one that we were talking about, the Catholic-Protestant debate, in my mind is clearly at the top of the list of fundamentals, whereas something like the difference on whether or not there can be a woman deacon in the church is very much of a secondary or a tertiary issue. And we should make a distinction between those doctrines. On these fundamental doctrines, we most definitely are to be so bold as to proclaim the truth of God and to stand on the clear revelation of Scripture. On those secondary and tertiary issues, I think there has to be some liberty within a congregation. How else are we going to grow up in all of the little fine points and issues and non-fundamental issues in the faith? So I hope that that makes that more clear. I was just going to recommend, if you're interested in following this up, a book by R.C. Sproul called Faith Alone. He really understands the Reformation. He really understands what exactly is the foundations of the Catholic Church, the Council of Trent, the whole issue of justification by faith. And he explains it really well. I grew up Catholic. So did I. But it's not the Catholic Church in general because I understand the shortcomings of the Catholic Church. I have a hard time with the Christian arrogance towards individual Catholics that take a broad base of Catholic beliefs. Mother Teresa and her witness, to me, when I was saved, is huge. I mean, the Bible is what spoke to me and how I was saved. But her life and my mother, who has gone to daily mass since she was in sixth grade, every day of her life, will not miss it for anything. She knows Christ. And she knows the Scripture, even though I just think that sometimes Christians have a real arrogance about them that they can condemn a group of people based on a history or based on a broad generalization. And I think that that's wrong. And that convicts me as a Christian because my witness, the Catholics, 
is damaged by Christians who are so condemning, I who have gone so. to them and said hateful things to them, and therefore my mother won't even step foot in this church, not even to use this room for a family gathering, because of hateful things that Christians, so-called Christians, have said to her. Well, let me let me say something, Charlotte. I haven't heard, and I could be wrong, okay? I could have my fingers in my ears. But I haven't heard anybody condemning Catholics this morning. And I think part of the arrogance that that you're referring to is is that if somebody denounces a Catholic doctrine or a Catholic teaching, somebody who is very close to Catholicism takes that as an offense against Catholics. And it is not an offense against Catholics. It is an offense against a false doctrine or a false teaching, which is that which we have to contend for. And, and you know, I think, I think anybody, if they have their doctrinal or religious understanding attacked by some other doctrinal or religious understanding, takes, tends to take that personally, okay? But in this classroom this morning, no one has, has condemned a Catholic, or, or, but, but Catholic doctrine has been brought up as an issue. I think it's the most absurd thing in the world to question whether or not the Pope is safe. I just, I mean, I'm not, I'm not condemning him because I think that's probably something that many Christians would have the arrogance to speak. But to question that to me is just so beyond absurd. I can't even bear it. Then how are you ever going to know who you need to share the gospel with and who you don't? Are we just going to wait until someday they get life. some divine revelation? Oh my God, his life it's not by was words. such a witness. Mm-hmm. It is such a witness. Okay. I mean, I mean, Mother uh, Teresa, her life was such a witness. How can you be so arrogant as to question? I mean, I had my I think you're missing the point. By someone else. I think you're missing the point. The, the point is, the point is the understanding of the gospel. Okay. The the point is the doctrine, the teaching. Okay. And and what Joy was clearly pointing to was the clear understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what he is saying is, if there is a false doctrine, which he did not say that there was, but if there is a false doctrine, he's saying, can, can you just have some false doctrine out there about what it even means to be saved, what the gospel even is, how you get saved, what it's all about? He's questioning the doctrinal system, that's all. And, and, and all he's saying is that there are some very subtle differences that we need to come to know and understand. And... And I think that you're taking that as a personal attack against the people of Catholicism, which it, it is not. Actually, I'm taking it more as, a, as an attack against Christians. Well, that, that arrogance runs both ways. My, there are members of my family and my wife's family that have condemned us for leaving the Western Church. Absolutely. Outright told us. Well, you know what? condemned for leaving the Western Church. So hey. that arrogance runs both ways. Uh, we're going to end here. <laughs> and uh, I trust that the Spirit of the Lord lives in all of your hearts and that you know what you ought to do here. And I'm going to pray. God, our Father, we thank you for your great love to us. God, we thank you for your truth. I pray that you would impress it upon our hearts, that you would help us to see clearly, Lord, the mission, the purpose, the structure of the church. God, help us to see clearly what you're doing in our lives and in our hearts. Help us to see clearly what our ministry, what our proper working in the body is. And Father, we do pray that you would give us wisdom and revelation. 
God, we do pray that you would help us to see if somehow we are arrogant or, or, or out of line. I pray that you would impress that upon our hearts, that you would convict us by your spirit. Lord, I also pray, Lord, if, if there is some kind of doctrinal ignorance in any one of us, that you would help us to see that, that you would reveal that to us and show us the way of truth. Lord, I just thank you so much for all that you're doing in us. I thank you for this precious passage of Scripture. I pray that you would impress it upon our hearts. We thank you for all that you are doing among us. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.